Church. I'm Leonard Lopate. Phosphorus has played a major role in some of the most lethal substances on Earth, firebombs, rat poison, nerve gas, but it's also the key component of fertilizers, and when it's combined with oxygen to make phosphates, it holds our DNA together, makes our bones strong, and carries out fundamental chemical reactions within our cells. In his latest book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance, Dan Egan investigates the past, present, and future of what's been called the oil of our time. It's published by W.W. Norton and brings Dan Egan to our show now. Welcome. Happy to be here. Phosphorus is uh, element number 15 on the periodics uh, table. Since it's an essential part of life, why have some described it as the devil's element? Well, it is essential to life. It's in every living cell on the planet and maybe in the universe. Um, but in its elemental form, which, which it doesn't normally exist in the world in its elemental form, uh, it's pretty dastardly stuff. It was known as Willie Peat in Vietnam, white phosphorus. It makes incendiary bombs that will burn through a building or a body or pretty much anything that it hits. So that's one reason. And then another reason is, it was the 13th element discovered back in the 1600s when an alchemist who was trying to find the mythical um, philosopher's stone, the substance that they believed could turn base metals into gold. Um, he was hoping that he could turn urine into gold? He, he was hoping he could turn urine into gold. And it turned out urine could pretty much only turn a snowbank gold, but it could produce could produce elemental phosphorus. And that's where this story starts. And it really is... A crazy story. Well, doesn't phosphorus come in a variety of different forms of which we differentiate by their colors? Uh, what determines yeah, there, the colors? There's different Why? allotropes. Go ahead. But there's different allotropes. But but really, when people talk about phosphorus in in normal terms, they're talking about phosphates. Uh, it, it gets the nomenclature gets gets complicated. So I stay at the say at the outset of this book, this 240 page book. It's relatively short. We're just going to call it phosphorus, and we're going to just stick with that so people don't get confused. And and so our relationship with the element today is primarily through agriculture fertilizer, but historically, it's been it's been a weapon in its elemental phosphorus form. It was discovered in Hamburg, Germany, in the 1600s by this alchemist that I was mentioning. Hennig also Brand turns out in 1669. Yes, exactly. Yes, and uh, also it turns out that. Hamburg was burned to the ground in 1943 by the Allies using incendiary bombs, many of which were phosphorus. So the very place that it was discovered um, ended up suffering greatly because of it. And as we're heading into the future of uh, phosphorus scarcity, Hamburg is again at the forefront of this story in that they are pioneering some pretty incredible technologies to harvest the phosphorus that's normally lost to sea through our waste stream and, and repackaging it as the critical fertilizer that Europe and the rest of the world needs. Now, after days of heating up vats of urine, Hennig Brandt isolated a white, waxy solid. Do we know how he reacted when it got dark and he observed that this newly created substance glowed with a, an eerie green light? Yeah, it was a bewitching substance, the likes of which nobody had apparently ever seen before. And you could you could smudge it on a wall, and it would leave a streak, a glow in the dark streak. But the thing about this devil's element is, if it warms above a tick, 
of ro- above room temperature, it explodes, it combusts. So about at 80 Fahrenheit, it'll it'll just burst into flames and 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 burn through anything that it touches. So, but he so, thought originally it could be used as an alternative to burning candles to light a home. That's before they realized just how volatile it was. Oh yeah, and and it was used. I mean, there were some practical. Uh, applications for it early on. It was used in, in match sticks. And, uh, it's also s- severely poisonous. It was used in, in rat poison and, um, many other purposes, but it, it was billed as some kind of, uh, cure all, but it turned out it couldn't really cure anything. He, but it can feed humanity. Well, we'll get to all of that. Okay. Uh, Brandt named this new substance phosphorus. Uh, after the Greek for light bearer, bringer of light, light bearer. Yeah, it was it was phosphorescent. Literally, it glowed in the dark. And that's because of, of its reaction with oxygen. Yes. Didn't you once consider replicating Brandt's experiment? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I wrote a whole book about phosphorus and. Admittedly, it doesn't sound like the sexiest topic going. So I thought I needed to start out with a bang. And my idea was... Start out with a bang, literally. With a bang, yeah. So, well, fortunately, that didn't happen. But it could have. Um, I Yeah, I have have a turkey fryer. I have a recently deceased father-in-law who's a chemical engineer. He spent his career working on nitrogen fertilizer technologies. But he knew some things about this stuff. And... uh, I had access to a bunch of urine because I have a bunch of beer drinking friends. So we thought we'd take this turkey fryer in the back and give it a go. But then I reached out to a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University and he told me to slow down, back off and basically stop. He said that uh, we don't really have the um, the equipment these days to withstand the intense heat that is required to distill elemental phosphorus. And the closer, I, even if I, if I did somehow manage to get the, the flame's hot enough and, and, and the vessel's uh, sturdy enough and stout enough, uh, I was in danger of, of harming, if not killing myself. It's such so combustible in, in many states as it is precipitating out. So this guy said, don't do it. And I took the uh, beginning of the story in a different direction. And isn't the, the story of those strike anywhere matches that you mentioned earlier uh, a clue, uh, a warning? Uh, strike anywhere matches with phosphorus were produced in the 19th century by the billion, but it had uh, a real effect on the dippers who made them. Yeah, Fosse jaw is a phenomenon, not unlike uh, what radium did to the many women who worked on um, assembling watch faces you know, earlier this century. Um, yeah, it's it's toxic and, and chronic exposure can lead to some some pretty bad stuff. So what happened? It ate away at their bones. How long? Yeah, they, how long did that go on before they realized that it was the phosphorus that was causing the problem? I, I don't know the details of that, but yeah, I mean, they they used to call these forms of matches lucifers, mm-hmm. which is which is basically Latin for bringer of light, and they were they were very dangerous. I, I, I did read an account of. Some royal in in Europe, uh, she stepped on one and was wearing uh, a dress with some kind of gossamer material, and she just went up in flames. And that wasn't an isolated incident, from what I understand. But it's burning people today, too. 
Well, phosphorus is white phosphorus anyway. has also been used in incendiary bombs and to produce smoke screens. So it, it's been used all over the place. What about the other color phosphoruses, red, violet, black, most recently I don't get, pink? I don't get into that. I know that red was used in, in match tips, and there is some red phosphorus today in the strike pad along uh, the side of the matchstick boxes. But that's not really what this story is yeah. about. It's really about the uh, essential nature of phosphorus, the idea that it is you know, a critical component of our food supply, but it's also a critical dastardly pollutant at the same time. And the race to mine phosphorus took people from the battlefields of Waterloo, which were looted for the bones of fallen soldiers, to bird poop on the Guano Islands off Peru, the Bone Valley of Florida, and the sand dunes of the Western Sahara? Yeah. You know, since humans started agriculture some 10,000 years ago, it's always been a constant struggle to keep fields from uh, going fallow due to the loss of nutrients. And they didn't understand why at the time, but they just learned through trial and error that certain materials kept fields fertile. And, you know, one obvious source was livestock manure, but uh, human waste was used as well. And sometime in the 1700s, the British discovered that bones were a remarkable uh, nutrient and they started by using like the shavings from knife handle factories, knife factories. Uh, and that put them on a hunt for bones and that led them, propelled them to some pretty dark places, including the battlefield of Waterloo. So, so that battle was waged in 2000 or in uh, 1815 and some 40,000 soldiers fell in about 10 hours along with a bunch of horses. And you would think that that their bones were then looted. Yeah, well, you think there would be some sacred mass burial site or something like that. But by the 1820s, the bones were all gone because the British came back to reap their (laughs) their spoils and uh, and and harvested, mined, looted, whatever you want to call it, the battlefield for all the bones. They built special mills to crush those bones and they sprinkled them like magic dust on croplands across uh, the UK, and and that was really the dawn of the chemical fertilizer industry. Unfortunately, you know, there's only so many bones out there compared to mouths that need to be fed and acres that need to be uh, fertilized. So the British continued the hunt, which took them to the western coast of South America, a place called the Guano Islands off of Peru, and these islands were just essentially mountains of bird dung because the birds ate fish coming up the Humboldt current coursing along the west coast of South America and they needed a place to nest and to rest and so they um, colonized these islands and under normal circumstances all that waste would have been washed back into the sea to stitch together the, the whole natural nutrient cycle but because it's so dry off that coast off of Peru Mountains of the stuff accreted over eons, and when the British realized what a nutrient trope it was, uh, they went to town on it. And at the time, and this is the mid-1800s, they thought that the supply was inexhaustible. And not surprisingly, by the end of the 19th century, those, those reserves or those, those deposits were played out, and the hunt, the hunt continued. And isn't the largest known deposit of phosphorus rock in the Western Sahara, which holds 70 to 80% of the world's phosphate reserves? 
Yeah, so when I talk about the hunt continuing, you know, the chemists got of the day got in on it and, and they started analyzing different materials for their phosphorus content. And it turned out there are certain deposits, primarily of sedimentary rock, that are really rich in phosphorus, but they're relatively rare and they're not scattered equally around the globe. The U.S. deposits are primarily in Florida, and and it's basically a bunch – Bone Valley, yeah, which is basically a a graveyard of fossilized dinosaurs and other ancient critters along with sedimentary rock, which is created on the ocean floor – over eons and then through ocean levels rising and sinking or through tectonic action, they become available on the surface and they get mined. But yes, so we have three to four decades more worth of phosphate down in Florida. And there are some other smaller deposits in, in Idaho and North Carolina, but we'll likely be on the hunt for phosphorus ourselves soon enough. And you're correct that roughly 80% of the world's known reserves are in Morocco and the occupied territory of Western Sahara. But that is a troubled area, isn't it? Because uh, native Sahrawis have been pressing for independence, so there's been a a kind of a a war going on in the area. Oh, yeah, there's been a low-grade war going on for a long time. Um, It basically started when Mexico, when Spain, excuse me, pulled out of uh, the Western Sahara, a colony it had in the 1970s. Morocco viewed it as their territory, and they they sent soldiers down and, and occupied it. Uh, coincidentally, at the time this happened, uh, the Spanish had just completed a massive phosphorus mine, and and it's, it's quite valuable. And so the natives felt that the Moroccans and the Spanish – had plundered their own natural resources, and that that started a war that sent tens of thousands of people into refugee camps in nearby Algeria. And at the time, it was thought that these families would go over there until things cooled down, and then they'd be able to return to Western Sahara and resume their nomadic ways. But that was in the mid-'70s, and those tent caps camps exist to this day. So this there's been violence over this there's a lot of landmines that protect the actual mine and um it's considered a flashpoint going forward i mean but there doesn't have to be a war for there to be great destabilization when it comes to an ever-growing human population with you know increasing tendencies for high phosphorus demanding crops and foods like beef uh morocco is going to become a critical uh, a critical player in in natural resources issues going forward. Did that situation in Western Sahara lead you to compare phosphorus to oil? It's it's similar in that when you think about say energy security, and you know that was a big reason why we we embarked on the ethanol program, which is related to phosphorus, and we can talk about that in a bit if you're interested. Sure. But uh, energy security is one thing. There are workarounds to oil, one of them being ethanol. It's not a great, it's, it's not a very good workaround, but there's solar, there's atomic, there's options, but there are no options for phosphorus. I mean, it, it's, Isaac Asimov referred to it as life's bottleneck. Once you run out of it, you run out of life. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's as critical as oil, I would argue, even more so, especially as the reserves get depleted and new sources, um, need to be found. 
My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Dan Egan, whose latest book is The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance, published by W.W. W. Norton. This is WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, we've been talking about it becoming depleted, but too much phosphorus in the wrong places, in the runoff to lakes, ponds, and rivers, leads to problems, doesn't it? Uh, toxic algae blooms that uh, um, destroy the water, make people yeah. sick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. the the book The book is organized into a couple of sections, and the, and the first section is the hunt for phosphorus, and it's the history of its discovery and its early use as a as a as a fertilizer and um, the quest that the British and soon much of Europe and the United States joined to to find these rare deposits of this stuff. The second uh, section of the book is is really about the costs of of this. So historically, we were in like a well-balanced circle of life. In simplest terms, think about a pasture where a cow eats the grass, a cow poops, that grows more grass, the cow eats that grass, it poops and on and on and on. It goes. It's the circle of life, literally. It is Once fertilizing the, the the ground. Yeah, it fertilizes the ground. And and so the, phosphor, the phosphorus molecules really never go away. They just circle over and over, you know, kind of tick-tocking in and out of the living world. It was the circle of life. And we cracked that circle and turned it into a line, a straight line that ran from farm field into our waters once we discovered how to make chemical, artificial fertilizer through primarily through these rock deposits. And and that's had tremendous benefit to humanity. I mean, at the time we started manufacturing fertilizer from rocks around 1900, there were roughly a billion people on the planet. Well, today we're at 8 billion and zooming toward 9 billion. And it wouldn't have happened without the discovery of uh, phosphorus as a fertilizer. The other two critical elements I, I would add to, to modern fertilizer are um, nitrogen and potassium. And ever since we discovered how to strip nitrogen from the air and put it into a form that's uh, workable as as a nutrient, that was back in 1909 with the Haber-Bosch discovery, we haven't had a problem finding nitrogen. And potassium, there's there's lots of potassium deposits across the earth. We're not in danger of running out of that stuff anytime soon. Phosphorus is a different story. But while we're still... You know, looking at phosphorus scarcity, we're, we're, we've been using it for the last century, overusing it to the point that we we now have these algae blooms plaguing lakes, rivers, ponds, uh, freshwaters across the country, and and these blooms aren't just unsightly and smelly; they're 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 poisonous. Didn't a federal funding program with bipartisan support help to clean up the Great Lakes? I can't imagine yeah. in today's political situation that there was a bipartisan agreement on anything. Yeah, so the first the first indication that phosphorus wasn't just a magical substance with no do- downsides came in the 1950s and 60s when we started having horrible algae blooms in the Great Lakes and across the United States. But the lake body of water probably hit hardest was Lake Erie, so much so that you know, the, the blooms would span up to 2,000 square miles. And, and at the time, it was, a, it was a different type of algae, typically. It wasn't poisonous, but it was still 
deadly to the lake because it was so prolific. It would, it would grow everywhere. And then like anything else, it dies and its decomposition burned up so much oxygen that you had these vast dead zones, dead zones on Lake Erie. Hence its nickname, uh, America's Dead Sea that took hold in the 1960s. And it was so bad that even Dr. Seuss got in on it back in 1972 when he was writing the Lorax. He made a crack about how polluted Lake Erie was. Uh, and, and so we knew we had to do something. And, and that something turned out to be the Clean Water Act. Has uh, Lake Erie been a source of drinking water for Toledo, Ohio? Was it, sure. Wasn't that the subject sure. of your previous best-selling book, The Death it was, of Life it, of the Great Lakes? Y- yes. Yes, it was. Um, but, but And that's what got me interested in, in, in the research for the Great Lakes book is what got put me on the path for this phosphorus book. But what happened, I mean, to, to, to just flesh out the beginning of this story, and it is a story. Um, so in the 1960s, they realized that detergents – which at the time were formulated with, it was almost, you know, a box of phosphorus that you're buying when you bought detergents. About laundry detergents. Laundry detergents, yeah. And, and so what happened, you know, people were wondering what, what is it about our modern chemical world that are, is causing these lakes to turn green and die? And some people thought it was nitrogen. Some people thought it was phosphorus. Some people thought it was carbon. Some people thought it could be any number of things. So these very ambitious and creative scientists, carved out a big swath of uh, wilderness in northwestern Ontario where they were given basically free reign to treat uh, dozens of lakes like oversized test tubes so they could experiment and they could give one lake phosphorus and one lake nitrogen. And they, in, in one of the most famous experiments, they took one lake, which guaranteed it would have the, the exact same natural chemistry, and they divided it in half with a giant polyurethane curtain and in simple terms, one side got phosphorus, one side got nitrogen. Two weeks later, they went up in a helicopter, and one side was green as a golf course, and one side was that deep Canadian blue water. And so phosphorus was identified as the problem, and detergent makers, sometimes they were forced, sometimes they did it voluntarily, but they reformulated uh, their products, and that's how Lake Erie recovered. And the recovery was so fast so the Clean Water Act, which was all part of this, came in effect in 1972. By 1985, Dr. Seuss was back in action again. Is he had learned about Lake Erie's recovery, and he agreed to pull it from the Lorax because the lake's phosphorus-driven algae blooms had abated so quickly. But now they're back, and today the source isn't what's coming out of a smokestack or a pipe or a sewage treatment plant, but it's it's largely uh, agriculture. Well, didn't the Clean Water Act of 1972 set stringent requirements about what cities and industries could discharge into waters? Absolutely, yeah. So in regulatory parlance, you know, they, they identified point source polluters and non-point source polluters. And that's kind of a long way of saying pipes and smokestacks and fields. And they decided they weren't going to try to regulate fields nearly to the degree that they were going to regulate industry and sewage treatment plants because they thought that that was the primary source of the problem and regulating what comes off. Like you can cap or plug a smokestack or a pipe or at least strip the pollutants out of it before you let whatever's left in that 
waste flow out into the environment. You can't do that to a farm field. You can't take a squeegee and, and clean a farm field of its excess waste. So they thought two things. One, that the wastes were so diffuse uh, and, and difficult to, to consolidate that it wasn't worth the effort. And they also didn't think it was significant enough. And they were right at the time. But since then, we've only added billions and billions of people to the planet. And, and farms have gotten bigger and our meat consumption has gone up. And that's put the stress on the waters that we have today to the point that, yeah, Toledo, some years, several years back, it was 2014, actually, August, uh, the city of about 500,000 on the shores of the world's largest freshwater system, Lake Erie is one of the five Great Lakes, lost its drinking water supply because toxin from this toxic algae got into the pipes of the city. And this wasn't a case where it's like, boil your water until we get this figured out uh, and we'll all be fine. If you boil the water, all you do is concentrate the toxin. So it was a bizarre and somewhat frightening situation where you had the National Guard bringing in pallets of baby formula. Because you know, just think about, I mean, we all need water, but but boy, you know, if an infant can't can't be getting formula, uh, in a city of a half a million people, the infants there, that's, that's a serious issue. And so that's why the National Guard was brought in. They were bringing in tanker trucks full of water and it took them several days to get the situation ironed out. And, and today they've got the drinking water system back online and they're treating it aggressively for the, for the toxin. But the, that's, that's just the symptom. The, the cause of the problem, the algae is only getting worse. And and we, just like back in the 1960s, we know what the problem is. It's primarily agriculture, and we know what to do. We need to reduce agriculture runoff into the western basin of Lake Erie by some 40% uh, to, to fix the problem. But unlike the 60s and 70s, as you mentioned earlier, we, this effort to clean up this first round of messes was, was bipartisan. Uh, the effort today is politically pretty much non-existent. The whole plan is voluntary at this point. So it's a real interesting dynamic. I mean, we've got this essential life nutrient that is finite in in resources, and we're at the same time we're overusing it to the point that we're poisoning our water with it. So, so industrial American farming is one of the reasons for the current crisis because farm animals produce large quantities of manure that's heavy and phosphorus, and then that winds up in our water supply. Um, now, human excrement goes through wet wastewater treatment. Animal excrement does not? Uh, yeah, no. I mean, animal excrement is, is basically just spread on fields, whether those fields often, whether those fields need that nutritional boost or not. The fact is these farms, especially these mega farms, the concentrated animal feeding operations, you know, they have pond size uh, tanks or they, they literally have ponds of, of liquefied manure that they have to, they have to move off their, off their farm because the cows, you know, some of these operations have 10,000 head of cattle and they're producing manure every day, just like they're producing milk and it's got to go somewhere. And it is a, it's, it's an excellent fertilizer, but a lot of times these fields that are receiving this fertilizer don't need it. So it just washes off, goes downstream, and unfortunately, phosphorus doesn't lose its miraculous fertilizing properties when it hits water. It does, But it doesn't grow things we want, like corn and soybeans. It grows too often toxic algae, which is a problem pretty much in every state of the union and pretty much everywhere around the globe, and it's getting worse. 
Does it matter whether the cattle are penned in or roam free? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's this idea, this bucolic notion, and there, it exists to a certain degree today. I mean, where where you're in, let's call it phosphorus balance. Your your cows are producing a bunch of the stuff, um, but it's it's coming back it's it's the circle you know the the cow especially like a dairy operation the manure would fuel the crops or the the pasture the pasture would feed the cow the cow would produce milk and produce manure and we'd get more grass that's not the way things work anymore you know at these farms the the, the cows the livestock aren't out grazing on pastures they are in stalls being fed grains corn often from far away fields and their poop accretes on site and it is i used the word earlier point source pollution versus non-point source pollution they, they are increasingly becoming point sources and that point that source are these massive sewage lagoons which are an opportunity really if you think about it because you mentioned human sewage gets treated and it, it does and it gets treated pretty well not perfectly there's still a lot of phosphorus discharged from it but we could get to the point where we could treat um, these sewage lagoons as well and there's there's a lot of resources in there i mean you can get you can get energy through methane and you can get the phosphorus and we were talking earlier about the extent that the british were going to to find any kind of substance to fertilize their crops to keep the island's residents from starving. They wouldn't look at these lagoons as something to be disposed of. They would see them for the nutritional trove that they are. And I would argue, so should we. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Imposterous, you drive me crazy. Figuring out how you move in phosphorus, so enigmatic. For enjoying my conversation with Dan Egan. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the book we are discussing, The Devil's Element. Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Linda Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Dan Egan, whose book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and the World Out of Balance, is published by W.W. W. Norton. He's a former Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter, and his previous book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, won, won a number of prizes. Now, did your inter- uh, you suggested earlier that your interest in the impact of phosphorus began when you were working at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and you wrote about the, the the role of phosphorus in the toxic algae blooms in Lake Erie. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm a native of Wisconsin, and I I've lived here most of my life. But my my early part of my journalist career was spent out west in Idaho and Wyoming and Utah. 
and I was out there for about a decade, and I came back to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel as a feature writer. But after spending a decade in the desert, I came back to the shore of Lake Michigan, my beloved Lake Michigan, and I saw it in a whole new light. And I started writing stories about it, about people who made their livings off the lake fishing, about what was happening ecologically to, you know, various fish stocks. Um, what impact does it have, phosphorus have on fish? Well, it's the I base mean, it's of the food chain, It's bad if we drink actually. the water. What about if a fish is drinking the water with phosphorus in it? Well, the pho- I mean, phosphorus isn't bad. Too much phosphorus is. And I was mentioning earlier about the, these guano islands. Well, what was going on there was these fish were fe- these birds were feasting on the fish that were following the Humboldt current up the west coast of South America that was just rich with naturally recycling nutrients, including phosphorus. So it's not bad. As a matter of fact, if it's not in a body of water, you're not going to have anything living in that body of water. But think of it as like cancer, you know. Uh, if, if, once life starts growing out of control, that becomes problematic. So, yeah, that's that's the story of phosphorus. We 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 can't live without it, and we're increasingly having a hard time living with it. But that's what how I got on this path was. I started covering issues about the Great Lakes, and after about ten years, I took a break and I went out to your city, to Columbia University, and worked on a, a, a master's in environmental journalism. And part of that was a book writing seminar. And part of that book writing seminar was a book proposal. So I put together a proposal for this Great Lakes book based on about a decade's worth of work I'd done for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And it sold. I mean, that's if you want to write a book, I guess you have to go to New York City because that's where everything <laughs> seems to happen. But it was also a warning, wasn't it? That book seen as a warning. Yeah, I mean, water, the thing bodies of water the, in this country. How many are threatened? How many bodies of water in the country are threatened? Yeah. Well, is it, are so they all wherever there's well, animal uh, excrement nearby? To varying degrees. I mean, in simple terms, when we got the Clean Water Act in 1972, the goal by the mid-80s was to make every body of water in the U.S. swimmable and fishable and with treatment drinkable by the late 1980s. And we've missed that by a mile. But the improvements have been dramatic. I mean, think of we keep talking about Lake Erie, and I guess that's because it's a great lake. It's huge, but it's also the shallowest and warmest of the Great Lakes. So in many ways, it's the most sensitive to environmental troubles. And I'm sure you could remember back in the dark days of the 1960s when the Cuyahoga River, which flows through downtown mm-hmm. Cleveland, uh, was so polluted that it was bursting into flames. It was, and, a rock song was written about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know which one you're referring to. I, I know that I know, I'm familiar with one by R.E.M., yeah. but... Uh, Okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah, things were really bad back then, and things have gotten a lot better in a lot of places. But but we're we're far from being able to swim and fish in every body of water. Um, for example, I live in Milwaukee, and there's a lot of people who fish on the Milwaukee River. But you would be you would not want to um, rely on those fish for your food for your primary food source. I'll just put it that way. And now with this, uh, I know this is not in your book. But with all of the uh, tornadoes and other troubled weather of recent times, 
I'd imagine that has created a certain crisis regarding phosphorus and and it and the balance of phosphorus in the environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, rains are becoming increasingly intense, especially spring rains, which for this for this issue is really unfortunate because if the rains come before the crops start to grow. Those rains will wash off the fields, all the nutrients that have been applied chemically or manurially um, in advance of the of the growing season. And how dangerous is this? Well, here's an example. In 2019, I believe that 2019 and 18, some 12-month period during those two years was the wettest 12-month period on record in 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 the Mississippi Valley, which spans some forty percent of the continental United States, a lot of rain came down the Mississippi that year, so much so that there was so much fresh water spilling out into the onto the coast that it basically turned the Gulf Coast along uh, the Mississippi shoreline some forty miles into fresh water hmm. and with that fresh water came the exposure and the risk to this this toxic algae that I was talking about. Most of the toxic algae uh, that I write about is is unique to freshwater systems. But the Gulf Coast nearshore areas turned fresh enough that the beaches, some 40 miles of beach, some 20 public beaches, and these aren't just like empty beaches. These have lifeguard stations and jet boat rentals and, you know, the works, umbrellas and chairs and volleyball they were closed to the public beginning at the end of june for the rest of the year because the water was deemed too toxic for any kind of uh, human contact wow. and that's the direct result of of a very very wet year flushing a lot of a lot of water into the gulf but also that water wasn't just water it was rich with with nutrients including phosphorus on in in another area might belches of phosphorus gases from decomposing remains in graveyards produce that that strange glowing vapors that some people interpret <laughs> yeah. as graveyard ghosts? Yeah, yeah, it could. And, you know, it's also been suspected, if not implicated, in the phenomenon of people spontaneously combusting. And there was a book written about all this quirky stuff with phosphorus back in the... Uh, I think it was the late 1990s by a British chemist. And it's a great book. It's a different book from mine. I, I don't really focus on the quirkiness of, of, of phosphorus in, in the natural world as much as I focus on its essential uh, nature to humanity and also the way it is increasingly imperiling humanity or at least its environment at this point. But it's, it is a human poison. I mean, it's killed people. Back in the 1990s, some of this toxin produced by the toxic algae got into the water supply at a dialysis center in Brazil and killed like 50-some people. It kills dogs. You could just go Google uh, toxic algae dogs. And, you know, during the summer, the hot season, there's stories about it almost daily. And there's long-term health effects, too, which those are probably some of the most frightening aspects to this whole dilemma. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Dan Egan, whose latest book is The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance, published by W.W. W. Norton. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, although phosphorus is the root of many problems, you seem to be reminding us that 
balance is the, the real issue here, isn't it? In what ways? Absolutely. I mean, what we really need to do is the book isn't a call to action to do this, this or that. It really is just, and I say that at the outset, I'm really just, trying, just trying to trying connect to some people? dots. Yeah, I'm trying to paint a picture for people so they can see that, you know, we really have broken the circle of life by going to this chemical fertilizer-based agriculture system. Now, I'm not saying we get rid of that at all. I'm saying that we have to be keenly aware that there are consequences when this stuff is overused and it makes its way into the water because, you know, and I'm not disparaging farmers at all. I had breakfast this morning. I'll have lunch after this. I'll have dinner tonight and I'll do it all over again tomorrow. But as much as we need food, we need water. And we just talked about some of the, some of the dangers it, it poses specifically, you know, to getting into people's water supplies and, and poisoning them. So what we really need to do is to, you know, it, it's a lot like the way we look at water. I mean, just because water is polluted doesn't mean that it's lost forever. It can be treated and restored, and water bodies can be treated and restored. And we need to restore more of this this notion of a loop. We need to start looking at, as I said earlier, these lagoons of sewage of, of manure as as potential resources, as as we need to be looking at, at the human waste stream as well. Because, you know, before we started building sewers back in the 1850s, or, you know, it started in London and, and Paris, they, that was a public health issue because people were living in their own filth. A lot of that filth, quote, unquote, was making its way out to pastures well beyond the city limits uh, by people called night soil men. That they would literally cart away the, the human excrement and they'd bring it out to the countryside where it could be composted and, and used to grow crops. As the cities got bigger, that just became impractical. And, you know, people were, were chronically exposed to things like cholera and typhoid. And so the answer at the time, which made sense in the 1800s, was let's just flush all this stuff out to sea, out of sight, out of mind. And and that worked for a little while, but it kind of marked the moment when we stopped trying to live within this virtuous cycle of life, which is, you know, it makes sense. It's very intuitive if you think about it. Um, but but we don't live that way anymore. And there's never going to be a time where we can go back, you know, into a, a world that is in complete phosphorus balance. But it's been estimated that just the livestock waste stream could could account for, if we were very efficient, we could supply 50% of the fertilizer, chemical fertilizer. We could supplant 50% of the chemical fertilizer we use today with 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 uh Animal waste, and you're not talking about just dumping a, you know, a gallon of dung on on a crop. You're, you're harvesting it. You're, you're chemically treating it so it's as pure as anything that's coming out of a modern fertilizer factory based on rock fertilizer. So there are opportunities here, and that will do two things: that that protects the water, and it also extends the life of the world's reserves. Now, when we're speaking globally, you mentioned earlier that 80 percent, roughly. 80% of the existing reserves are in Morocco and Western Sahara. In a troubled area. It's a troubled area, but it's also not an inexhaustible supply. I mean, there was one researcher from Australia back about a decade ago who calculated that 70 or 80 years is all we've got in existing phosphorus reserves. And that number has been scoffed at by a lot of people in the industry. But nobody I saw was saying that, 
the reserves take us out 300 or 400 years, which sounds like a long time, but not when you're looking at the history of humanity. I mean, that's about exactly as long as we are from phosphorus being discovered as an element in Germany back in the 1600s. So things happen quickly. And we need to just start thinking about this. It's not a crisis today, but it, it's it's not going to go away unless we change the way that we do businesses, do business, and it's it's only going to get more intense. Two of the three essential elements in fertilizers, nitrogen and potassium, are nearly inexhaustible. But you're saying not phosphorus, and that when it runs out, uh, we're going to have all sorts of problems. Plant growth might stop, and feeding. Well, 8 billion humans uh, would become a, a problem. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's not going to end life. It's just going to move life, <laughs> move life and, and help some life, help algae, and, and not help humans so much. So as mentioned earlier, it never goes away. So, I mean, yeah, if you want to let your mind kind of run wild, you could see a day when we're mining the bottom of Lake Erie for all the gunk that's just lousy with phosphorus. Um, but we don't want to get to that point. And, and and another thing that I should say is when people talk about reserves, those are like the proven deposits that we know we can harvest, we can access, and we can do so economically. Well, that definition will change as it becomes as these rock deposits become more and more scarce. But there's no denying that we're on something of a collision course when we're we're heading toward nine billion people, many in developing nations, and as they develop, they are only naturally going to want to have a more meat-based diet, which is very phosphorus demanding. So, yeah, we've got a squeeze here. And it's just one of these planetary boundaries. It's not the only one. It's, you know, climate change is a huge deal. And and, and water, water pollution, whether it's phosphorus-driven or not, is a huge issue. But but this this idea that we have an inexhaustible supply of phosphorus, we can use it any way we want, and there will be no consequences downstream is folly. And we need to realize that and start thinking and eventually planning, not eventually, soon planning accordingly. Well, we have just a few minutes left. Um, are there other things you want to add to this? Well, I mean, I would just say that, I mentioned earlier, it's like a 240-page book, and yes. that's a good thing because it is about phosphorus. And which by I the way, earlier, written in a very clear style, which I appreciated. Well, thank you. Yeah, and that's that was a very conscious decision. I guess that comes out of your experience as a journalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and my fear that people will stop turning pages, <laughs> as, as most writers fear. But no, it's it is a story, and you know it touches us in so many different ways. Um, I I found it just fascinating. I felt like I went down a rabbit hole for three or four years, and I, I came back up, and I'm, I'm just starting to to breathe now. But yeah, I would just uh, tell your readers or try to impress upon your readers that this isn't this isn't a, a textbooky book at all. I mean, it opens with a police chase in Florida with a guy jumping into one of these canals mm -hmm. that's smothered in this toxic algae, and he's basically drowning, and the police won't go in after him, and they ended up fishing him out. It's all on body camera footage, um, and and then he just becomes violently ill and is carted off to the hospital. Now, and, we've been talking mostly about the situation in the United States. What about the rest of the world? Are there concerns about phosphorus and uh, a depletion of phosphorus in other countries? 
Absolutely. Western Europe is pretty much um, devoid of its own phosphorus deposits. And they're also, you know, dealing with water quality issues well, as they much have as farming, anybody. And they have farm animals. They, so does that they have farming and farm animals, but they don't have phosphorus. They have to import it. So, so yeah, they're trying to wean, like, like Germany is one of, I, I don't think it's all, the whole EU, but Germany passed a law recently within the past several years that's going to require essentially all phosphorus in their wastewater streams be, be pulled from it. And that brings us back to Hamburg, which is what it brings the book back to Hamburg too. I, I, you know, my the first chapter is about this guy discovering this mysterious combustible stuff. And then I move on to, you know, the city being burned down in the 1940s by phosphorus. Well, today Hamburg is like at the forefront of phosphorus recovery technology. They just opened a, Massive plant on the banks of the Elbe River that will do exactly what the law requires, or they're confident it will, and that is strip the phosphorus from from their waste stream and and use it in a way that is productive rather than destructive. And by that, I mean they're putting it back on fields. It's not human waste they're putting on fields. It is it's it's phosphate. It pure as anything that's going to come from a, a chemical factory. So yeah, uh, Europe Europe has has crops and food, but it's it's only because they rely on uh, the existence of other countries' phosphorus reserves. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that it's been called the oil of our time. Uh, obviously, it uh, it helps us to run things. But what about the other side? Oil has also been the source of of, of wars. Uh, is there a potential for wars over phosphorus or do people not consider it that important people don't consider it period you know that's that's the problem and that's kind of the point of, of writing a book about it we, we do need to consider it and could there be wars well you know there could be wars over hmm. almost anything right. but but there are you know i was mentioning about these refugees tens of thousands of refugees living in tent camps for you know Decades, generations, literal gener. I talked to a woman who whose grandmother grew up in the camp, as did she, and and she she spoke of, of violence to me, saying that she was afraid that this was there was a, like a low grade war going on until, but throughout the nineties, and there's a tenuous ceasefire between the the native Western Sahara people and and the Moroccans, but that's falling apart. There's been recent attacks on on this mine which is this phosphorus mine, which itself is fortified by hmm. an ungodly amount of landmines that nobody really knows where they are anymore because they're, they've been buried in the shifting sands of the Sahara. But there's a conveyor belt. This is an interesting part of the story. There's a 100-kilometer-long conveyor belt that takes this Western Sahara phosphorus from the desert out to the Atlantic where it's loaded onto ships and, and, and shipped around the world. Not as many ships as there used to be because people realize that Morocco, many people don't believe Morocco should be controlling this mine. And so they think of it as ill-gotten gains and countries have stopped buying it. I think uh, New Zealand is one of the last Western nations buying this Western Sahara phosphorus. But yeah, it can spark tensions. And, it, you know, I don't want to say, oh, we've got a war coming over phosphorus, but once people start going hungry, I mean, I don't know if you remember in 2008 when, for a number of reasons, fertilizer prices mm -hmm. skyrocketed, 
And as, as phosphorus prices go, so go prices of food. And there were riots in 2008 in India and uh, Haiti and a number of spots around the globe where once the food starts running low, you know, it doesn't take much to spark. Now, Dan spark. Egan's book is The Devil's Violence. Element, Phosphorus and the World Out of Balance, published by W.W. W. Norton. He is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. Maybe you'll win it with this one. And I thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. It was a very interesting interview. I appreciate your time. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast has surpassed 1 million plays and is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. In fact, keep the station coming to you because we are going through really rough financial times right now, have been ever since the pandemic began. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus, and a World Out of Balance by Dan Egan. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a BAI sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. And that allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because we rely 100% on listener donations. We're the only station in the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support, please. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest, Chad L. Williams, will discuss his new book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. We hope to see you then.